Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef, proudly supported by the Suncorp Bank. Galon Moulin and Jamie Gordon own and operate Mount Pleasant Station between Bowen and Collinsville in North Queensland. They've been active members of the Queensland Government Initiative Landholders Driving Change Project and not only active but pick up the ball and run with it kind of participants. Their willingness to trial different approaches to managing their property and then share it with their extended community has proved incredibly valuable in the Bowen, Broken and Bogey catchments of the Burdekin region. And we're very lucky to have Galon with us today. How are you, Galon? I'm good, thank you, Jane. You're good. Okay, look, let's start right um, at the start because we want to get a little bit technical, I guess, in this um, episode when we're talking about biodiversity, productivity and profitability and how they can be mutually beneficial. So what I might get you to do first is to really paint a picture of of where you live, what your property's like, and um, I understand it's a multi-generational property. So, you know, what did it look like when you first came on the scene and um, picked up the reins? Wow. Um, so we're a small family property in the Triple B. So we're on the Bogey River. Um, we're about oh, 60 kilometres south-southwest from the coast, from Bowen on the coast. Um, it's, oh, I call it shallow red goldfield soil, but I'm not very technical. It's probably got a much more technical name than that. Um, it's descriptive it though, became, so that's good. <laughs> it became Indian Cooch dominant probably about the four, the started in the 70s, 80s and 90s, so it's reasonably um, reasonably strong monoculture of Indian cooch. Um, and in, in my husband's lifetime, you know, he saw the productivity and the profitability um, decline, you know, so they used to win the ribbon at the show for the fat bullock and things like that, and, you know, those days were long gone by the 1990, late 90s, and um, by the time Jamie and his sister Joan and, and myself took over in the early 2000s, we'd probably, probably run the place down ecologically, you know, um, not, not beyond, not beyond repair, but it wasn't good. Um, yeah, so the, the Gordon family had been here since about 1917, and we don't know the exact date. We could never find the, but, um, August 1917 was. <laughs> Well, take over. A while ago. It's yeah. been here for some years. So I guess, you know, you've said it was pretty run down by the time you guys took over. So what was your first plan? What did you want to start with? What did you want to improve first? Oh, so Jamie grew up, um, I guess one one thing that just sticks in my mind is that, you know, we've got the... Um, the rail corridor that services the coal mines out, out west of here runs through our property and over time their, their fence boundaries have changed and there was an old an old rail corridor there and they'd said, oh, no, no, we're going to re-fence along here. So this part of the corridor now becomes part of your property. And Jamie looked at the, the native grass in there and said, oh, well, that's the end of them, you know, because we were going to let the cattle into them and those remaining, you know, cries of pogans and a few, probably a little bit of native sorghum and a few native bluegrasses and those sorts of things, you know, he just, as, as far as he knew, that we couldn't save them, you know, because our stock would have access to them. Um, and so 
yeah, he grew up seeing that decline. Um, and so when we took over, yeah, you're, you're juggling a lot of balls. There's young people with a young family. There's a whole heap of succession thing going on. And on top of that, you've got, you know, how do we, how do we make, how do we survive, basically? Um, and a little bit of peer pressure in our district. There was a, a couple of guys that we sort of respected a little bit that had gone off to do the grazing for profit school, and we thought, well, we might as well give that a go because what we're doing now is not really working. <laughs> and, and what was your background? So your husband obviously grew up on this property, and his sister, I'm assuming, too. So what's your background? My background, um, I'm actually a complete ring-in. Um, I think he was looking for a bit of genetic diversity. Um, so, yeah, I'm French and um, we turned up here in this country. And, um, yeah, he, he saw something in me. I'm not sure what, but, yeah, so here I am. <laughs> oh, there you go. So you, I guess, you know, and that would probably help in a situation like this because you don't have any um, sort of predecessors either way, like you can, or prejudices either way, and you can really approach it from a eyes wide open point of view, which would have been really helpful if you want to drive a bit of change and could see that there was the potential to do so. Well, I think I think it, it is a help sometimes, yeah, and, and sometimes it's a drawback. But but um no, I think I think it has been part of our part of our story is that that um as you said, no preconceived ideas. Mm, exactly. So you've gone to do a grazing for profit school and so that must have started you with a with a few different ideas on how you can improve? Well, I guess it was just a few key bits of a key bits of information that we just hadn't quite put together. It's really hard to do on your own, but and it was just very, very basic. And among a heap of stuff, the first ones was just plants need rest from 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 being grazed. And the minute, like me, from a completely non-farming background, and at the time I did a little bit of gardening, I was like, oh, so it's just if you if you mow your lawn too short, too often, it doesn't like it. Or if you mow it not not at all, it's not good either. But there's got to be that happy medium in there somewhere. So, so we've, that's all we've been playing with ever since, really. And now you've been involved with the landholders driving change, and that's really driven home the biodiversity, productivity, and profitability. And you've really incorporated that into your business. So, let's break it into three different different angles. And can you speak about to start with biodiversity and how that marries into your business? The biodiversity comes into it. Jamie saw. The the downward spiral, you know, in in diversity, we were losing species, losing species till we had we had very few. Um, and so, well, really, at the start, we just wanted ground cover back. Our ground cover was okay because Indian Cooch does actually give you okay ground cover, but we were getting scalded patches, and our infiltration wasn't that good. Um, and so, as we started to spell country a bit more and, and be, be a little bit more scientific about how we we grazed our animals. Ground cover came back, and then this diversity of plants came back. And it's like um, we still have some ridges that are still Indian Cooch dominant, but there's a lot of places that are much richer and have much greater diversity. And it's not just grasses; it's dozens and dozens of small, you know, non-grass species that are palatable that make up this fairly rich, um, this rich pasture. And as a consequence, though. Poor Indian Cooch country tends to rely heavily on urea supplementation for, you know, a good part of the year, and Mount Pleasant survived on that for many years. And since 2015, we haven't actually used urea lick at all, or grain, or copper meal, or whatever. No, it was sort of pretty much zero supplementation, which is pretty massive for us. And I think the reason we can get away with that is that we have that diversity in plant species now, 
So we've spoken, you know, about the biodiversity and the other key components in the landholders driving for change, driving change program is is productivity and profitability, and they're not too far aligned there. And I guess you've just mentioned the fact that you don't have any supplementation anymore. So how do those last two come into play? We produce more meat Mm. with less rain and less input. Have you noticed how your have your cattle changed the way that your that weight for age or anything like that? Absolutely. So on average, we're turning off stuff nearly twelve months earlier. Um, at the moment, our little steers go to the feedlot, and um, just our cows just go to the meatworks when when they don't breed. But we're also breeding, so we have a two month um, two month breeding window. And we're, we're now breeding yearling heifers, so they're 14, 14, 15 months. And um, season depending, we'll get somewhere between 25 and, and 55% conception in yearling, you know, in 14-month-old heifers, which for us is just phenomenal. Um, and that's also tied with the breed that we're using, um, which is um, a, a funny funny little breed from South Africa called the Nguni. Um, mm. And that's only a very, a very young story as well, so... Um, so what made you, did you, when did you switch breeds and all of this? Um, I think we bought three Nguni bulls in 2010. Okay, and what was the idea behind that? The idea behind that was that Jamie went on a farm tour of South Africa <laughs> with Terry McCosker and a few other um, a few other guys. I think they drank a lot of rum. And Terrific. He, all good decisions <laughs> happened then. You're lucky yeah. you didn't come back with a zebra or something. <laughs> What happens on tour stays on tour. Yeah. But um, no, he did see the cattle and he sort of said, oh, these would be all right. And, you know, there was a few a few guys there sort of thought he was a bit strange. Um, they are funny, funny looking. They're not, um, they're never going to win a ribbon at the show and nor should they, nor should they. What would you liken it to if there's no one who's ever heard of this particular beast? Um, they're a medium framed, light boned, horned, very colourful very fertile, very hardy little breed of cow. Um, right. Yeah. So we're, I shouldn't say this on air, we're probably single-handedly, you know, um, taken the industry back 50 years. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we love to experiment. <laughs> well, and so what market are you selling them to? Oh, right. So the, the, the boys are going really well in the feedlot, so F1s, F2s. Yep. Um, and, yeah, we're starting to have a little bit of demand for... Four little um little linguini heifers too, which is lovely. But there you go. You haven't taken it back fifty years or no, not like, at all. There's no, a bit no, of interest, that's a, so that's something. No, no, that's that's. Um, <laughs> we're, we're hoping to actually bring him bring him down to Beef Week, but I'm not. I haven't heard back that we've got a spot yet. But hopefully okay, we'll be well, down there. I will be there in that in, in <laughs> front and centre. In that case, you've changed the breed, and that obviously affected your operation in, in some kind of way. What else did you come up with around about that time to really make a difference to your business? I think we learnt a little bit about business management and profitability and economic analysis of your business. And I think the bit that we sort of skip over and I think the, the thing that underpins all of this is the people. You know, we had a lot to learn about ourselves and how we operate and how we how we sort of function or fail to function. Um, and I think I think that people people on a farm are, you know, this sometimes this huge... Um, spare capacity, you know, 
mm. um, to operate at a slightly higher level. So I'd like to think that we now operate at a slightly higher level than we used to, but I might be wrong. And that comes with benchmarking and that sort of thing too. Once you you know tap into some of those networks and you're able to see what other people are doing and where um, leaders in the industry are and where you want to be, that becomes an easier process. I think it's really important to go out and visit other people and see what other people are doing. Um, we, in a way, you know, it's easy for us to change because we weren't in a good place, you know, so change is not... We were sort of desperate, you know. We were... Something we owed a lot of money and interest rates were very high and we had we had very low profitability... Well, negative profitability, if that's, if that's how you say it. Um, so we had nowhere to go. We had nothing to lose, really, by... by I am shaking things up a little bit. I'm just listening to your birds. It's quite the yeah. um, chorus you've got there. <laughs> oh, that's the storm birds going <laughs> off, yeah. Well, look, as long as they bring some storms, it really doesn't matter. I guess, <laughs> you know, you, you guys have become quite well known in your area for really involving the community and being quite open about some of these decisions and also not afraid to trial different approaches too. So... What really, um, how are you sharing what you've learnt within your community? I guess you just go about your daily business and every now and then someone says, oh, why are you doing that or how are you doing that? And you mm-hmm. say, well, this is what we're trying at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got the formal structure of landholders driving change, um, as you mentioned before. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a little project close to my heart. Um, some very brave souls came up with that, I think, inside NQDI Tropics. And I won't name them because I'm likely to leave someone out and that would be terrible. <laughs> but they were very brave and they come, came up with this this concept that they would harvest ideas out of the grazing community. Right, if there was money available, what do you want to spend on? How do you want to spend it? Um, and so in the triple B, I don't know if there's, there's 70 or 80 large-ish you know, grazing properties. And at those initial meetings, there was Collins, Lincoln and Bowen, possibly. Possibly Mount Coolum, I can't remember. There was a seventy-five percent of the properties were represented in those meetings. It was just incredible. That's a lot of engagement. It's huge engagement, and you know, we, we had we had a few secret weapons. We had a, a very well respected lady by the name of Lisa Hutchinson, and she would ring people and say, "Come on, you've got to come to this meeting." And you know, she had a following, and people did turn up. Um, and from there, we had more meetings and we, we got as many ideas as we could and then they went back and they diligently tried to sort all of the ideas into some key areas where the money should be spent and how it should be spent. And then on top of that, they formed a, a panel of extension science um, and and um, six graziers. Yeah, I think there's six of us still at the moment. And so we continue to be involved in giving feedback on how the project's going and, you know, ad- advising. We don't make decisions that we say, yeah, that sounds good or I don't know about that. We- we've been involved all the time. Um, and so it's been a really good little project. And so from that, as part of that, um, it was Lisa Hutchinson still back then that developed the Mount Pleasant Learning Hub, which was, you know, I'd be happy for our name, the Mount Pleasant not to be there. But anyway, call it the, the LDC Learning Hub. And it's just a little place on our property where we... We get together for anything, um, just a container with a few tables and chairs, and it, it's a bit of a meeting place. We've had a biodiversity day there. We've had an LCAT day there. We've had a drone day there. We've had whatever anyone wants to put on, um, basically. We've got another little project at the moment um, that hasn't quite got off the ground, and it's building nesting boxes um, for wildlife to install there at the at the Maloon Gully site. 
to monitor what, what wildlife we've got there and we're trying to involve work camp girls in Bowen. Wow. Um, into building them. That's just this great community sort of melting pot. It's just lovely. Yeah, that sounds like a terrific little community really and I guess yeah, that's where... Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to, you know, grazers, we tend to... We're on our little... Our, our, our farms are our little principality and we're pretty independent. We don't need to mix with anyone. We've got everything we need basically. <laughs> so we've really got to break out of that and, and talk to all sorts of people and break down those barriers and those... those um yeah. The one thing about the LDC, I think it's been really important, is on that project panel we have we have Zyro representations. We've got a, a social scientist, and we've got the farmers, and we've got. And over time, over time, we've built these relationships, and some some grazing ideas now are feeding back into Zyro and vice versa. Whereas in the old days, you'd meet these people one on one, you're a bloody scientist, and he'd be like, oh bloody grazier, you know. And there wouldn't be a lot of we wouldn't really listen to each other um, and farmers I think sometimes are not seen as having any technical sort of skills or knowledge and through the LDC and having you know regular contact and, and going out in the paddock and you know doing doing field walks we now have this lovely trust and respect between all these different areas that um, we can actually share ideas and they're actually listened to at a greater depth and sometimes you know where, yeah, there's there's a, a information exchange that's happening that wasn't before, so it's really really good. I think that's one of the big focuses of the landholders driving change, though, um, because they're in a number of different areas. So it really is that peer to peer learning and and that um, realization that grazers probably do learn best when um, speaking with their neighbours or, or getting sort of outside their particular property. Yeah, no, I think I think there's just not enough of that. And even within our small community, you know, so it's LDC has, has built rapport between science, grazing, extension, community and ecologists and that sort of thing. It's also built built little they have um they have little catchment catch ups, so they'll have three or four properties that are working together on a on a common project, you know, with some erosion or whatever it is, some weeds or anything. So those guys get together a little bit and then you know, but it's sort of facilitated. It's it's so no, it has it has strengthened our bonds and and that that knowledge transfer and and accelerated all of that, which is really good. So the last fifteen years or so, you've you know been on a fairly high trajectory with with changes and and improvements to biodiversity and everything else. What's next? Like you must have got some ideas out of this last few. Um, what's next? What are you working yeah, towards? Yeah, so I guess when we talked about biodiversity, we didn't really. I, I talked about I guess pasture biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the changes we've seen in the pasture has obviously there's been a a flow on effect in the flora and uh, the fauna, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so species that were gone, um, and common species, common species that were just gone, you know, little things like um, red back wrens gone because they don't like Indian cooch. They want giant spear and they want native sorghum and they want um, the big, you know, even just boring old black spear. You know, they need all that. That was gone. You know, so with all that stuff coming back, you can do a water run, leave the house here and go through a four or five pay and run into, you know, at the right time of year when they're they're nesting and they'll they'll sort of yell at you for going too close to their nest and you can go past four families just in a straight line. That's coming back. So it just really drives home the impact that you have on the ecology and you don't even know it. You know, um, all of the quail, the button quail. Um, we come from a a regime um, 20 years ago 
poor water distribution, one third of the place like heavily, heavily overgrazed, one third of the place really undergrazed. And so the undergrazed stuff got a match every year and not a nice coral burn, a hot burn, you know. Mm. Um, and then that destroyed a lot of plants that couldn't tolerate that and a lot of habitats. So mm. the big standing dead timber, that is this massive, a lot of stuff depends on those big old shelly iron barks with their peeling bark and their hollows. There were so many um, species that rely on that, you know, they were gone. So we're just starting to rebuild that 20 years down the track um, and we've seen... Our first um, Agurnus triolata, so that's like a big black tree skink, and he lives up in that peeling bar. You know, those guys used to get burnt every year, so that's just really cool. Blue tongue lizards, that, where there's no history of blue tongues here, bar one or two sightings over, you know, 30 or 40 years. Now it's like, oh, I saw a blue tongue today, oh, that's cool. And do you find that, you know, I guess too, when you're talking about profitable beef enterprises and, you know, at the end of the day everyone's there to make money um, with their cattle and I guess that's got to be part of it for you. But do you find more and more landholders are really um, getting more passionate and more interested about that broader biodiversity? Look, I think they are and they always have been. Um, Subconsciously or it's, or oh, it's a bit the of cattle both, have come I, first? I, I think we're lucky in our sort of country that it's not highly productive. Um, you don't really benefit from clearing trees in, in our sort of... So it's roughly in a state that's similar. There's similar similar tree structures and similar... Even though the, the, the native grasses and, and small, small plants are coming back, it is actually incredible. What we're noticing now is that the layer of tree and shrub species that were grazed out that are coming back. We think this is ironbark and bloodwood country and it's... It's iron bark and this area and um, bottle tree and oh god, um, the the beefwood is the one that came back for the quickest. You know, we had zero baby beefwood. The old fellows had cut them all down to build yards, and the cattle had eaten all the young ones. Yeah. So there were no no beefwood at all. So there's two species of grevillea here, and um, parallela and striata, and they were both gone. And the minute we started, you know, giving paddocks a bit of spell, here's all these baby beefwood and these baby false beefwood. Um. And all of those, oh, the, the first generation are now about 15, 15, 18 years old, and they're just starting to flower. You know, we took a whole, not even a species, but a, a, a whole family of plants out of this environment. So um, it's just nice to see them back. You know, that will be form serving a function in the ecology that we took out. They will flower at a certain time. They'll feed a certain species of bird. They'll, yeah, th- their niche is, is going to be filled again. But And that's really basic, but there's so many things that, had been grazed out, even just the figs. It's all just watching it come back. So when you say, well, what's my next thing? I was like, well, I'm going to sit here and watch this all happen for the next, you know, hopefully 40 years. <laughs> have you, but you haven't lowered your carrying capacity or anything? You're still carrying the same uh, number no, of cattle? No, it's higher. No, we, we now, oh, it's, it's variable. We, we change it all the time. But our, our benchmark carrying capacity is just shy of double what it was. But I wouldn't go out and say, what well, we've doubled now. It's not quite double, um, and it, it moves up and down a little bit, but generally we, um, yeah, we, we're running, running more and, stock. And that's, and that's because of increased ground cover and, and you know, yep, less fragility yep. in the yep. store. Healthier, healthier, healthier pastures. So we, we grow more with less rain, absolutely. Mm. With your South African and the Nguni, what percentage of your um, herd are Nguni now? Um, we just last year took out the last of some absolutely fabulous old Brahma cross cows 
And we said, oh, we better get rid of the old girls. So everything born now is in Goonie, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the nought, our little nought heifers that go to a bull this year, in a couple of months, their babies will be seven-eighths, which is wow. pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. And so, yeah, and it must be gaining some interest in the local community. I think a few folks drive past and they say, oh, you've got those speckled parks. And we're like, oh, they look similar. But they're probably a fairly different origin and a fairly different purpose. Um, so yeah, no, they, they get confused with speckle parks. They um, they, they're a bit spotty and funny looking. What's your favourite part of the business? You've come in here cold turkey, and you've just rattled off any number of you know. You're obviously very entrenched in all aspects of it. But what's your favourite besides bird watching? Oh, favourite. There's ah, oh, geez, Jane. I'm just going to go off on a completely different tangent because I made myself some notes here, and I think. I think where we're going with this into the future, because we're always talking about mental health and, you know, how tough it is being on the land. And I think we've seen as the land becomes healthier and more resilient, I think the health of the people becomes better. So I think that's not the question that you asked me. No, but that's a a really interesting interesting concept. And that came at us from a completely different angle. Someone said that back to us within the family unexpectedly, and I was like, wow, that's cool. So meaning a change of you and Jamie and your family? With yeah, your absolutely, within, within our family and, and land and nature healing it, healing itself and healing us, and I was like, wow, that's, that's very cool. You know, if that's our legacy to ourselves, that'll do. Thank you very much. Yep. Yeah, no, and I think, <laughs> I think that's a terrific thing to take away. Well, look, I might leave you there, Galon, unless there's something else that you would like to speak about. Oh, there'll be about... 500 things once I put the phone down I'll go oh what a wasted opportunity I think Jane this sort of thing I think it's super important that you have and and I commend commend you guys for getting a range of people you know um, I think there's a danger in telling one version of the industry you know and there's a lot of us out there that are doing things and um and experimenting, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work, it's still worthwhile exercise. I think it's Alan Parker has this model and it's, you know, a third of your life is, or your project or your whatever, a third of whatever you're doing is planning and goals and visions and, you know, this is the path we're going to take. A third of it is ex- experimenting, just try different stuff. It doesn't have to be high risk, try stuff. And a third, as we found this year, um, is unexpected arrivals, things you could not see coming. I just love that model. That's exciting. That makes it, it sounds quite fascinating when you say it like that, isn't it? Oh, it's, it is. It really is. I, like I, I used to struggle a little bit with the, I can do the vision, the goals to get there, I'm not sure. And I'm like, I don't want this, this structured plan because all this special stuff's going to turn up that I might miss out on. But I love, I love Alan's model. Um, I'll do the planning and the visions and the goals, but let me, let me, you know, those opportunities are going to come up. But it gives you permission to, to get sidetracked, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and go off and, and watch lizards and birds on a lick run because you can. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Galan, thank you so much for your time today and we'll see you with your beautiful South African breed at, or well, maybe, I'm yeah, preempting I that, so. at Beef 21. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jane. No problem. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners, 
Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.